Chapter Six of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The next day, Oakhurst was full of people and mrs oak to my amazement was doing the honours of it as if a household of commonplace noisy young creatures bent upon flirting and tennis were her usual idea of felicity the afternoon of the third day they had come for an electioneering ball and stayed three nights the weather changed it turned suddenly very cold and began to pour every one was sent indoors and there was a general gloom suddenly over the company mrs oak seemed to have got sick of her guests and was listlessly lying back on a couch paying not the slightest attention to the chattering and piano strumming in the room when one of the guests suddenly proposed that they should play charades he was a distant cousin of the oaks a sort of fashionable artistic bohemian swelled out to intolerable conceit by the amateur actor vogue of a season it would be lovely in this marvellous old place he cried just to dress up and parade about and feel as if we belonged to the past i have heard you have a marvellous collection of old costumes more or less ever since the days of noah somewhere cousin willie the whole party exclaimed in joy at this proposal william oak looked puzzled for a moment and glanced at his wife who continued to lie listless on her sofa there is a pressful of clothes belonging to the family he answered dubiously apparently overwhelmed by the desire to please his guests but but i don't know whether it's quite respectful to dress up in the clothes of dead people oh fiddlestick cried the cousin what do the dead people know about it besides he added with mock seriousness i assure you we shall behave in the most reverent way and feel quite solemn about it all if only you will give us the key old man again mr oak looked towards his wife and again met only her vague absent glance very well he said and led his guests upstairs an hour later the house was filled with the strangest crew and the strangest noises i had entered to a certain extent into william oak's feeling of unwillingness to let his ancestors clothes and personality be taken in vain but when the masquerade was complete i must say that the effect was quite magnificent a dozen youngish men and women those who were staying in the house and some neighbors who had come for lawn tennis and dinner were rigged out under the direction of the theatrical cousin in the contents of that oaken press and i have never seen a more beautiful sight than the panelled corridors the carved and escutcheoned staircase the dim drawing-rooms with their faded tapestries the great hall with its vaulted and ribbed ceiling dotted about with groups or single figures that seem to have come straight from the past even william oak who besides myself and a few elderly people was the only man not masqueraded seemed delighted and fired by the sight a certain schoolboy character suddenly came out in him and finding that there was no costume left for him he rushed upstairs and presently returned in the uniform he had worn before his marriage 
I thought I had really never seen so magnificent a specimen of the handsome Englishman. He looked, despite all the modern associations of his costume, more genuinely old-world than all the rest. A knight for the black prince or Sidney, with his admirably regular features and beautiful fair hair and complexion. After a minute even the elderly people had got costumes of some sort, dominoes arranged at the moment, and hoods, and all manner of disguises made out of pieces of old embroidery and oriental stuffs and furs, and very soon this rabble of maskers had become, so to speak, completely drunk with its own amusement, with the childishness, and, if I may say so, the barbarism, the vulgarity underlying the majority even of well-bred English men and women, Mr. Oak himself doing the mountebank like a schoolboy at Christmas. "'Where is Mrs. Oak? Where is Alice?' someone suddenly asked. Mrs. Oak had vanished. I could fully understand that to this eccentric being, with her fantastic, imaginative, morbid passion for the past, such a carnival as this must be positively revolting. And, absolutely indifferent as she was to giving offence, I could imagine how she would have retired, disgusted and outraged, to dream her strange daydreams in the yellow room. But a moment later, as we were all noisily preparing to go in to dinner, the door opened and a strange figure entered, stranger than any of these others who were profaning the clothes of the dead. A boy, slight and tall, in a brown riding coat, leathern belt and big buff boots, a little grey cloak over one shoulder, a large grey hat slouched over the eyes, a dagger and pistol at the waist. It was Mrs. Oak, her eyes preternaturally bright, and her whole face lit up with a bold, perverse smile. Everyone exclaimed, and stood aside. Then there was a moment's silence, broken by faint applause, even to a crew of noisy boys and girls playing the fool in the garments of men and women long dead and buried, there is something questionable in the sudden appearance of a young married woman, the mistress of the house, in a riding coat and jack-boots, and Mrs. Oak's expression did not make the jest seem any the less questionable. "'What is that costume?' asked the theatrical cousin, who, after a second, had come to the conclusion that Mrs. Oak was merely a woman of marvellous talent, whom he must try and secure for his amateur troupe next season. "'It is the dress in which an ancestress of ours, my namesake, Alice Oak, used to go out riding with her husband in the days of Charles I,' she answered, and took her seat at the head of the table." Involuntarily my eyes sought out those of Oak of Oakhurst. He, who blushed as easily as a girl of sixteen, was now as white as ashes, and I noticed that he pressed his hand almost convulsively to his mouth. "'Don't you recognize my dress, William?' asked Mrs. Oak, fixing her eyes upon him with a cruel smile. He did not answer, and there was a moment's silence, which the theatrical cousin had the happy thought of breaking by jumping upon his seat and emptying off his glass with the exclamation, "'To the health of the two Alice Oaks, of the past and the present!' Mrs. Oak nodded, and with an expression I had never seen in her face before, answered in a loud and aggressive tone, "'To the health of the poet Mr. Christopher Lovelock, if his ghost be honouring this house with its presence.' I felt suddenly as if I were in a madhouse. 
across the table in the midst of this room full of noisy wretches tricked out in red blue purple and party color as men and women of the sixteenth seventeenth and eighteenth centuries as improvised turks and eskimos and dominoes and clowns with faces painted and corked and flowered over i seemed to see that sanguine sunset washing like a sea of blood over the heather to where by the black pond in the wind-warped firs was lying the body of christopher lovelock with his wounded horse near him the yellow gravel and lilac lings soaked crimson all around and above emerged as out of the redness the pale blond head covered with the gray hat the absent eyes and strange smile of mrs oak it seemed to me horrible vulgar abominable as if i had got inside a madhouse End of chapter six